Să fugim care încotro Cântând pe gheața crăpată Să ne luăm viața la mișto Welcome to the Human Odyssey podcast. This is episode 7, and what you just heard was an excerpt from the song Suare Kudinti by Robin and the Backstabbers. My name is Jamie, and today I'm joined by my co-host Skander, as well as Dr. George Yordakescu, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Sheffield, currently working within the ERC Biosec project, examining the interrelationships between biodiversity conservation and security. George, thanks for joining us. How are you doing? Thank you so much, Skander and James, for having me. I'm very fine, enjoying the beginning of autumn here in my uh, picturesque village in Romania. How are you? Good, good, thanks. Where about in Romania are you? I'm right in the southern Carpathians. Uh, if you know where Brasov lies, it's one of the mm-hmm. biggest cities in Transylvania. It's just south of it. Yeah, actually, um, weirdly enough, I, I've gotten a, a couple of offers from the European Corps um, to go work in, in Brasov. But uh, I didn't know much about it before. So it's, it's in the middle of the Carpathians, then, or? Yes, it's totally worth living there. I consider it yeah. for my future as well. All right, okay, mm. nice. But you're a researcher at Sheffield University, is that right? Yes, um, I work at Sheffield University in the Department of Politics and International Relations, and I'm doing research as a postdoc, research associate mm-hmm. in the Biosec project led by Rosalind Duffy. And your your project, uh, Biosec, right, is uh, examines a lot of like intersections between security and conservation. Yes, yes, we are trying to uh, see the global unfoldings of uh, merging security approaches to conservation and try to see if this anyhow changes the way we uh, finance conservation, the way we go about conserving uh, species. And uh, all my colleagues investigate different species or different kind of legal frameworks or features of this uh, securitizing of conservation. Have you has the current crisis, the COVID crisis, impacted you um, quite a bit or your research? Uh, not not really, because we are in the final year of uh, of our uh, mm-hmm. funding. Uh, so uh, actually, uh, we just ended in uh, in August the the official funding period. So uh, most of the research has been done. Uh, the higher impact was in uh, our communication. So we were not able to attend conferences. We were not able to uh, do some knowledge exchange workshop uh, over the last few months. But we moved everything online. We changed the strategy. We launched blogs, podcasts, and other crazy uh, crazy stuff. So I think. Uh, yeah. It did not affect us much. Yes, and, and this is funded by the European, uh, by Research European Council. mechanism, right? Yes, by the European Research Council, which is a program of the European Commission. So I guess we, we can just jump straight into um, one of Biosec's main uh, publications, which you were author of, which is called "The Illegal Logging and Timber Trade Between Public Security Threat and Organized Crime." Uh, this was published just this August, actually, right? Yes, we, uh, we released this publication um, together with uh, other policy briefs that we produced and uh, we wanted to mark somehow the end of the project by, uh, with a boom, you know, mm-hmm. with, uh, with this set of recommendations and uh, reports, technical reports uh, for various stakeholders like EU institutions, governments, big international NGOs and so on. So yes, this, uh, this report was published very recently. Before we maybe get into the details of the report, can you... Could you paint a picture for us as to what Romania's forests, I mean, this is the, the, at the crux of your research, really, um, what Romania's re- forests 
look like and what their current status is like maybe a little bit of, of, of history i mean just to just for our listeners to kind of get an idea of what it is like to to do research in these forests sure i will try to do that as briefly as possible because it will take us several podcast episodes only this aspect romania currently has almost 30 percent of forested area it's close to the eu uh, average eu average is 32 percent and most of these forests are uh, beach forests so a species we have beach and uh, fur um, of course uh, beach is very charismatic um, because uh, it used to colonize the entire european continent after the last uh, glaciation um, it, it just conquered everything and migrated uh, until the sub-arctic uh, um, areas and now it's so charismatic for conservation purposes and uh, it became somehow the pinnacle of environmental protection in the eu uh, so saving the beach forest and the virgin beach forest uh, is one of the main points of most of the eu strategies uh, nowadays this is currently under attack uh, so that's why uh, you hear a lot in the media about uh, romanian forests being under attack um, but it's also sort of a disproportionate attention because uh, in, in my country it's the biggest percentage of these forests western uh, countries lost this uh, forest long long ago 18th 19th century or even earlier uh, so that's why you will see uh, Romania as being uh, you know making headlines uh, in the Guardian in BBC documentaries uh, newspapers in France or Netherlands or everywhere so there is a lot of attention in the last let's say five years or even more uh, directed to environmental crime here um, but of course, uh, the situation is much more complicated and the, the story of the Romanian forests uh, is, is not necessarily written, uh, uh, recent. Sorry. Uh, and whenever we talk about the recent transformations, we have to take into account this rich history of ownership, of use, of coexistence, and not only with the forest, but also with the uh, other non-human actors. Uh, we have the highest population of brown bears in Europe, more than 60% of all the brown bears that we still have today. We have the highest population of gray wolves, lynxes mm -hmm. and everything else. So whenever you hear about this wilderness paras, uh, paradise is not necessarily yeah. inaccurate. Mm -hmm. uh, so you will find here uh, most of these charismatic species that usually attract all the attention in policy or uh, in NGO campaigns. And yeah, they can, they can easily become symbols, right? Sure, sure. Yeah, the brown bear. Who wouldn't want to save the bears, of course? Um, and and as I, I learned in your in, on your paper, um, the state owns almost half of the forests in Romania. Um, local communities own almost a fifth. Uh, private owners about a fifth, and then non-state associations about fifteen percent. Um, that's is that in your experience? Is that quite different from other EU forests? Uh, yes, uh, the figures that you just mentioned are accurate currently, with a caveat that uh, these numbers are changing all the time since restitution laws are still ongoing. And uh, in fact, there are many uh, court trials and a uh, lot of contention about restituting these forests. Um, largely, we can say that it's the same situation in most of the post-socialist countries, which is Eastern Europe, with the exception of um, 
Serbia and uh, Poland, where most of the state belong, most of the forests belong to the state. Uh, in all other countries, you'll have a very, very mixed uh, ownership regime. Right. Um, during state socialism, the state owned most of the forests uh, and uh, extracted timber and other resources according to uh, planned economy principles. Uh, but after the fall of the uh, communist regime, most of these forests have been uh, given back to their pre-war owners. And it's not only part, uh, private owners or private individuals. It's, uh, we have a very long tradition of forest ownership uh, organized by villages and by communities. You have all these forests conserved or taken care of by uh, uh, communities of owners who organize themselves according to historical principles. I'm also a member in one of them, which was founded in 1604, so more than 400 years ago. So it's a very, very diverse uh, landscape of forest ownership. Hence, that's why we have so much contention about it. Hmm. Would you say the, the recent uh, crisis for the forest is associated with the change in ownership you know change in the balance of what types of you know pr private ownership local community would you say it's associated with this absolutely it's uh, it's very very uh, associated with this because uh, during the 90s uh, when the first restitution laws were uh, were adopted it was a huge chaos people uh, were not really uh, aware of what means to manage or to govern uh, uh, this resource sustainably um, they were not sure if uh, the ownership rights were permanent. They were afraid that the state would come mm. and take them back. Uh, there were also others who tried to profit uh, during this process and uh, forge documents, you know, in order to uh, get titles uh, and then uh, uh, immediately cut the entire forest. Uh, so it, it was a very, very messy landscape. Mm, mm -hmm. And most of the problems emerge there. And not only with ownership, but also with the way... Uh, labor in this sector is organized yeah. um, because in the 90s and early 2000s when there was this murky legal landscape lots of uh, gray market emerges lots of illicit operation emerged and uh, it was a frontier kind of development you know it was uh, in the Carpathians you could find the real frontier of timber extraction in Europe and these illicit um, these illicit activities have actually been sometimes referred to as uh, organized crime, as, as your research points out, and even become a public security threat uh, in the past few years, which is, uh, I, I don't know, I've, I, I guess I don't really see that much. I, I think it's, I would say just from the surface level, I think I would say that it's quite interesting to see something being like deforestation be called a public security threat. I think a lot of environmentalists would want that to happen. But how do you see it? How, how have you seen it affect the actual kind of uh, practice of it? I will start uh, by going a bit uh, uh, back uh, a couple of years mm -hmm. before forest uh, illegal logging was declared a national forest uh, national security threat, because this is only from 2016. Uh, but advocacy for uh, doing this legal move uh, started at least in 2013 or even 2012 uh, when um, big NGOs started to establish offices in Romania and they tried to um, pressure the government somehow to deal with this problem. It was also the years uh, in which uh, Romania um, 
became part of EU in 2007. So the legal framework was not that adapted to the EU uh, nature protection framework or other uh, frameworks regulating timber. Um, so um, advocacy for, for this move was uh, much started earlier. And then in 2016, we had the technocratic government, which uh, jumped many, many steps in nature protection. And it was quite a sort of a revolution in, in terms of protecting uh, nature in Romania, um, not only forests, but also charismatic species uh, and, and, and other type of habitats and ecosystems. Um, so we had a draft bill that was voted by the parliament it's not only a governmental decree, then it was signed into law by the president, putting illegal logging on par with terrorism or sabotage or espionage. Uh, so uh, since 2016, uh, illegal logging and uh, illegal timber trade uh, can be tackled with uh, approaches coming from intelligence, from, from national security uh, area and, and, and so on. Uh, you could think that this stopped the problem uh, it was um, very much uh, a move to improve the image of the country in the EU, uh, because prior to this move, uh, the European Commission opened an infringement procedure against uh, the Romanian government. Uh, the Commission considers that uh, my government, Romanian government, is not doing enough to implement the European Timber Regulation. So uh, they tried to, to change the forestry code. They trying to do different kind of um, moves in order to improve, to improve the image. Um, my research uh, shows that actually not much happened. And even if illegal logging it was considered a security threat, um, there was actually not enough enforcement and uh, not enough prosecutions to um, give us uh, um, better results or to assess it as being an efficient move. Uh, but there were many, many other um, outcomes on a, a civil society mobilization level that, that were positive. For example, um, I, will, uh, I will refer only to the civil engagement in monitoring and reporting forest crimes. Uh, since uh, this issue has been portrayed and framed into law as a national security threat, Romanian citizens were um, deputized and even they saw themselves as defender of the forest mm. you know they, they right. tried to engage very very actively in, a, in dealing with this issue not only by mobilizing themselves on social media uh, establishing groups uh, but also by uh, taking the streets protesting uh, um, signing petitions uh, inventing democratic tools to control this issue um, pressuring the government to adopt um, technologies that will uh, democratize the access of of, yeah. of the people to uh, to dealing with this uh, with illegal logging and uh, there is a remarkable example in the uh, forestry inspector app also known as suman in romanian uh, that you just install on your phone and you can check the plates on every uh, truck transporting timber and you can see if that's mm -hmm. legal or not really so you can well, imagine yeah, that's that, so cool. uh, in the first years after this was adopted yeah that that was so cool it it everyone was was crazy about using this app in the first months uh, of uh, putting this on the market uh, more than 100,000 people downloaded it and start using it uh, that's a lot you know and uh, you don't have them only in uh, urban areas 
everywhere across the country. So uh, this was an unexpected outcome of labeling illegal logging a security threat. And uh, for a couple of years, I think it was a very, very positive outcome. Of course, in the end, uh, it turned into sort of a witch hunt where everything was considered illegal. And this uh, um, affected both the industry, but also the way we uh, govern the forest and manage the forest. But maybe we'll get to this a bit, uh, a bit later. Yeah, just to get a, a sense of scale, um, how big a part does the, it, does the forest have in the Romanian economy? Thank you for the question. Uh, currently, 3.5% uh, of our GDP uh, comes from the forestry. Mm. Um, it's not much, but it's significant. And uh, the entire sector employs uh, less than half a million uh, people. Mm, but most of these uh, people are in very small forestry operations in rural areas. So uh, imposing a moratorium or ending up um, timber harvesting will affect local communities a lot uh, in this respect. Um, because there have been proposals to, uh, to end uh, timber harvesting or impose a moratorium for a couple of years. Um, even politicians have supported these kind of measures in sort of a populist vibe because we have an election year. Um, but of course, they were not backed by, by science. Uh, they were eventually rejected by the parliament, but uh, still uh, it's something that comes back every time mm -hmm. there is a new scandal. And, and your research kind of shows a little bit how, um, I mean, just to quote it, that 3.5 million households use timber for heating and cooking is uh, quite a lot um, and it's I, I at least understood from your research that that a lot of um, when a lot of caps are put into place or, or laws that, that prevent people from cutting uh, timber then they kind of have to resort to illegal uh, illegal logging which in the end only criminalizes something that often is used for survival like what kind of part do the kind of smaller, more community-oriented needs play in this illegal logging, and how much does a more sort of organized uh, and potentially criminal, criminally organized um, society play in this? That's a very, very good question, and uh, this question has polarized public opinion and experts over the last couple of years. I will just give you an answer based on my research and the tradition of other anthropologists doing research on legal logging. Uh, um, that's true. Uh, 3.5 million households uh, need timber for heating, for cooking, and for other purposes in their household. So it's auto consumption, and not for uh, commercial activities. And this represents most of the rural population uh, because gas grid is not that extended in rural areas. And Romania has one of the biggest rural population in the EU. And you can imagine that this, these people need timber and timber is not always available or if it is available, it's very expensive, depends uh, every year. So uh, we've seen in the recent history, uh, timber shortage crisis manifesting almost every two years. And uh, you cannot uh, halt the access to this resource and expect um, that people will not resort to uh, gray markets or illicit activities. And this is doubled by the fact that some of these rural people do have forests. 
but they have small surfaces, less than one hectare. Most of these private owners uh, that you quoted in the figures in the beginning have less than one hectare. It's very expensive to guard, to pay for uh, forestry service to guard your forest, and it's very expensive to harvest by your own this timber. So you'll have to resort to other means to procure your resource to heat your house. Otherwise, we'll just freeze over the winter. And in Romania, the winters are not like in the UK. <laughs> yeah. So this this need, this relationship, is something that captured in just mere, you know, uh, GDP of from timbering. It is not. It is not because it's completely. Sometimes it's not even fiscalized. Uh, it is highly regulated, but not fiscalized. Um, so you can imagine that uh, in this kind of environment, it's very easy for gray businesses to prosper, you know, and from uh, people that operate illicitly to prosper as well. I'm really curious about this kind of gray area that you were talking about, because um, I was reading earlier about a WWF um, article where they were saying that you know, we talked about the ownership of forests and how um, the state plays a part and private actors play a part. And they were saying that about, uh, this was from last year, that about half a million hectares of forests are still uh, unknown and unprotected, kind of like they aren't officially recognized as forests. Um, they're like in this gray area of, uh, according to like recognized definition criteria, and therefore they're not guarded, they're not monitored. Uh, and they're not protected either. Does your research kind of touch on this a little bit as well? Uh, sure, Skander. Uh, this is a very important figure because uh, I, I have to say first that, uh, I mean, I said in the beginning the percentage of forested areas in Romania, but in numbers, this represents almost 6.9 million hectares. Mm. Uh, so 500,000 represents a lot of that percentage, right? So it yeah. would even increase uh, the forested areas in the country if this forest were considered actually forest. Uh, basically, they are um, forested pastures or grazing areas that have been taken up by um, by trees. You know, and this is not only a result of land abandonment, but uh, a result of all sorts of social environmental relations in the last thirty years. Uh, the state does not consider them um, or does not uh, label them and protect them, therefore, as forests, uh, because they are used differently by the users. Some of them are uh, used as pastures. Some of them are used as grazing lands or other agricultural fields. Uh, but the percentage of trees, uh, it's significant, so they could qualify as forests. Mm -hmm. uh, for the owners, uh, it's important to keep them as pastures or grazing lands because they get uh, subsidies uh, from, uh, I mean, within the common agricultural policy framework of the EU. Yeah. And qualifying them as forests will not uh, give them the same benefits. Mm. Uh, the cap subsidies are significant. Uh, so... Um, animal husbandry uh, farms uh, or those that have cattle consider it very important to uh, to keep these subsidies and not have more forest. As I remember from my own uh, research into things, these subsidies aren't minor either, right? They're like, I, I've seen subsidies from this common agricultural framework uh, sometimes make up about half of people's earnings. Like this is not just a, a little extra income. Like sometimes this can be the difference between life and death. 
absolutely even more than half depending on the type of uh, farm you have uh, i've done uh, many years of research with um, shepherds and uh, ship, ship owners uh, and um, they would say if these subsidies we will just go out of business uh, because it's not worth uh, selling the wool it's not worth uh, selling uh, the meat and we survive because we have these subsidies uh, and of course it's a nice mechanism so far uh, to keep also balance um, between forested areas and grazing areas otherwise you will have forests in many parts of the country just taking over the pastures that's not a bad thing from uh, climate change mitigation point of view but it would be a bad thing from uh, biodiversity point of view because a forested area it's not the same as a pasture in terms of species richness you know uh, so yeah. it's a very very complicated landscapes and it's not only a black and white uh, white image when we talk about these uh, these subsidies you know but you are right uh, and the figures um, put forward by WWF are accurate uh, half a million hectares uh, could be labeled as forest and protected as such but currently they are not and um, they timber here I mean trees here can be cut and sold as timber um, but not fiscalized as timber or not recorded anyway because they don't come from a forested area so the state does not have any attributions uh, to uh, um, fiscalize it or uh, you know regulate it as coming from an actual forest it's one great area there are many others most of them are in the legislation we can talk about them as well do the um Romanian people have a relationship with forests that is not, as we discussed earlier, subsistence-based or, um, economic, or economically based. And if there is, is this relationship kind of interfered by other forms of, of forest ownership? Sure. Um, Romania is a large country. I mean, it's a medium-sized country in the EU, so uh, we would not expect Romanian people, all Romanian people, yeah. having the yeah. same relation with the forest. This depends from, from urban areas to rural areas and also across regions. And mostly depends on uh, the historical um, um, types of forest ownership um, in the south of the country and the east, where where I currently reside. Uh, we have uh, historical forms of ownership, and of course, um, each community used to regulate its own access uh, to forest in a sustainable way, so that uh, they could uh, do so for future generations. Uh, in Transylvania, uh, there is another legal assemblage that comes from the Austrian uh, period uh, where Habsburg or uh, Austrian-Hungarian Empire used to rule over that province. Uh, so these relations of kindly depend on the historical uh, background, you know, but um, most recently, um, most of Romanians um, hold forests very dearly. And they uh, they get involved into uh, I mean they get involved whenever um, scandals emerge in the uh, in in the public discourse uh, they get involved in offering feedback to different uh, legislation pieces um, they organize themselves on social media uh, they tried to push the parliament to uh, give free access to the forest in the new forestry code that we just adopted a couple of days ago. Before that, you are not allowed to enter the forest if you wouldn't own the forest, right. you know. Okay. So um, the the connection is very, very uh, intimate. And uh, it used to be like this 
throughout the entire history. Forests were shelter, were a source of inspiration for most of the national culture and, and so on. So it's not something that uh, uh, is completely uh, divided from our historical evolution here. I, I wonder, um, this is more just kind of from my personal curiosity, I guess, but I, I so I did my, my thesis on the ways that uh, Greek austerity has affected uh, Greek environment and more specifically Greek forests in, in some parts of the research. And I was wondering how much of a link maybe there could be um, like similarities between um, between like these how austerity affected Greece and how the 2010s austerity uh, policies that have come into Romania as I, I think I remember there being austerity policies in Romania throughout the 2010s how that has affected Romania because in Greece what we saw was for example like heating fuels going up and so people going in and cutting trees more than they would have normally or the state kind of uh, trying to privatize you know in a sort of race to privatize to kind of sell off its forests or to demarcate its forests as not protected anymore so that people could come and set up businesses in them and you know, it's a, I guess this quote unquote liberalization of the forests that I personally saw in my research on Greece. So I was wondering if, if maybe that has sort of happened recently in, in Romania as well. Uh, it did indeed. Um, but it was not only a result, I mean, uh, it was not only provoked by austerity, but also a general liberalization of the market that came with the accession of Romania into the EU. Um, in 2007, uh, we became part of the EU. Greece was much earlier, of course. Um, so you can imagine that uh, the next years after um, we had to uh, implement EU legislation and this meant liberalizing access to forest, access to uh, timber market, access to uh, ownership of forest and so on. And the government was very, very diligent to um, adopting as a neoliberal neo um, approach as possible. Uh, so comparing with other nearby countries who do not allow foreigners to own forests, Romanian government allowed this in 2014. You had big companies uh, in England here buying forests, uh, doing what we call green grabbing, uh, mm -hmm. land grabbing in the same time. So that the first now after the state, the second, third and fourth biggest owners are foreign companies uh, with respect to forest ownership. You know, uh, of course, in parallel with this, we had uh, we witnessed the monopoly of the timber market. Austrian companies uh, in principle uh, penetrated the market and uh, during the or immediately after the global crisis, uh, global financial crisis in 2008, 2009, um, their market position consolidated because much of the f small forestry uh, operations went bankrupt, you know, so there was a lot of room for them to uh, maneuver and uh, take up uh, businesses. In, in my assessment, these were the two dynamics, uh, forest grabbing and the uh, monopoly of the market. Yeah, I, this is something that actually stood out to me in your research as well. Um, I, I do want to get onto the European Yellowstones uh, article at, at some point, but I, I guess I just have a lot of questions on this as well. You you mentioned that one of the big problems for uh, that came with illegal logging and timber trade was that 
corporations and, and sort of small, maybe small and medium businesses uh, started being portrayed or seen as uh, almost evil as like, as these, uh, these bad guys. Um, when that happened, it seems like they got kind of kicked out of this market and sort of uh, going bankrupt, etc. And actually, instead of moving the economy towards maybe things more sustainable or, or whatever you want to call it, instead, what seems to happen is that there was a void and that these multinationals came to fill that void, making the problem probably even even worse than it was before. Uh, that is true. And uh, there is a long history of blaming um, who is responsible for illegal logging in the country. Uh, in the 90s, when the forest restitution was ongoing, those who were mostly blamed were the new uh, private owners, and they were blamed by the state or by the state forestry company. Then in the early 2000s, you had the Roma people uh, who were landless, but who needed wood to heat uh, their homes, um, who did not have land titling either, uh, who did not have jobs because they were the first to be laid off uh, during post-socialist transition from the big factories. Uh, so Roma people were uh, portrayed as being uh, the criminals and the loggers. Uh, then in the late 2000s and the 2010, you had the big companies because they were penetrating the market and uh, many investigations revealed that actually they operate at the border between legality and illegality. Uh, this, was, this environment was somehow championed also by the fact that uh, there was a legal vacuum. Um, the European timber legislation was not adopted immediately in Romania, as in other countries of uh, EU as well. Um, while it came into force only in 2013, it was adopted in Romania and became effective only in 2014 towards the end of the year. So there were almost two years of legal vacuum in which everyone could do whatever they please. Uh, so you, you, you can imagine that uh, this uh, uh, everyone benefited from this. You know, I mean, the, the big companies benefited from this. Uh, yeah, this yeah. sort of public hysteria um, took uh, enormous uh, proportions and uh, social media followed suit immediately. Yeah. yeah, I can imagine. I saw two things that really stood out to me on your on your research as well, which was um, the role of fake news in all of this uh, that you kind of specifically point out because you have a little uh, sort of short section on that. And also the way in which uh, illegal logging and timber trade has actually kind of become akin to to criminal to organized crime and, and to sort of mafia-like behavior so i was wondering if you can expand just on this idea of of mafia-like behavior uh that you've seen and and maybe a little bit as well on on how fake news has has come to play into into these dynamics uh sure they are very very uh, much interconnected uh, i will start with the mafia-like operations um in the early 2010 um International journalists, but also Romanian investigative journalists, uh, tried to uh, uncover uh, businesses of illegal logging, and uh, they were the first to uh, call it crime or organized crime or mafia. Um, previously, uh, there have been many studies done by uh, anthropologists like Monica Vasile or Stefan Dorondel, um, who uncovered um, patron client relations spread across the country uh, that were deeply connected with uh, local politicians and, and so on, but never uh, at the extent of the, the entire national territory. So you could not really call it an organized crime. 
but journalists try to to use this term in order to uh, get a lot of attention uh, to get things uh, moving at the european level to get different kind of agencies like interpol or uh, the romanian uh, agency that deals with organized crime and drug trafficking involved into investigating uh, the issue uh, so um, this label immediately uh, became very popular at the civil society level uh, then whenever you had electoral years or you had presidential elections uh, the candidates were eager to uh, uh, promise that they will uh, tackle the organized crime into the forestry sector and last year for the first time we had uh, ministers in office and president in office uh, calling the entire business a mafia-like operation um, this is a publicity stunt, in my opinion, because if you look at the level of prosecutions and the level of, uh, uh, of enforcement, you will never find these kind of conclusions. Uh, actually, uh, very, very few of these allegations are investigated as serious crimes, mostly uh, as um, with civil, they are punished with civil sanctions, so they are not even crimes. Uh, but that there has been a trend into the national legislation over the couple, last couple of months to criminalize um, this uh, illicit behavior, this legal, uh, illegal activity. And uh, this was done again uh, um, because the government was pressured not only by the civil society uh, to criminalize uh, the illegal uh, logging, but also by the European Commission through a new infringement procedure. Uh, which is actually now pretty, pretty advanced and will probably go to the European Court of Justice and uh, Romania will face uh, high fines. Um, now we have a new forestry code that criminalizes uh, every um, activity in the sector that uh, is illegal. So it's not only a civil sanction anymore. Um, if you are caught with any quantity of timber, um, you are already criminal. Uh, this was augmented by the fact that illegal logging became a national security threat that we discussed previously. So uh, um, this has changed completely the landscape of uh, enforcing uh, legislation related to forestry protection. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, like I said before, it, you know, I think a lot of environmentalists would want to see forest protected to this level, uh, you know, on sort of instinctively Absolutely. speaking, it sounds like a good thing to have forests be protected uh, with this much sort of strength of, of, of rule of law. But, but I think what I worry about when I, when I read your research was, was how this can be counterintuitive and how this can actually affect the poorest and the weakest who rely on these things instead of really attacking the sort of the, the practices that actually cause a lot of deforestation maybe and the ones that are sometimes legalized uh you know like not not all crime is illegal a lot of crime is legal <laughs> that is so uh, that is correct and um this uh, pursuit of uh, of the criminal um allowed many companies and many illicit uh, businesses to adapt you know and to uh, do everything with papers but still doing illicit business uh, and there are many, many methods that have become uh, wide known by the civil society and by uh, by the enforcing authorities uh, 
uh, as well uh, through which companies can uh, can steal timber but have all the legal uh, you know protection and uh, apparently um, obeying the obeying the law uh, one of these is uh, chipping timber because according to the legislation is not considered wood so if you go to the forest, you cut some trees without any permit and you chip them, load them into a truck, they can take them out of the forest. It's not timber, you know, really? until very, very recently. Yes. Wow. So it, you can imagine that many businesses uh, evolved like this. Mm -hmm. that's, that's quite crazy. Um, can I go a bit to fake news as well? Oh, uh, yes, please. Yeah, please yeah. Just, just a couple of words. Um, in the same time, uh, in which journalists and media, mass media, portrayed illegal logging as a crime, they had to advance a couple of uh, figures or charismatic numbers to uh, to get them fixed into a public discourse. You know, and um, sometimes these were something like uh, three hectares of forest disappear each hour, or um, between this year and this year, twenty million cubic meters of timber. Um, were illegally cut. Um, this became very, very problematic because uh, specialists in the forestry sector and uh, independent researchers have widely criticized these kind of numbers. And not only the numbers, but also images uh, taken from drones with stumpscapes, you know, deforested mountains, uh, uh, this kind of uh, very, very spectacular images who don't necessarily show signs of legality or illegality, but they are immediately labeled as a disaster. Mm -hmm. um, clear cuts as well. Um, so this became the bread and butter of every environmentalist discourse everywhere uh, in the last couple of years. And uh, it were, uh, they were being taken at face value by European Commission and by other type of uh, um, European institutions uncritically. Sometimes, of course, they were signs of illegality, but often they were not uh, a disaster. And I will just give you an example of uh, recent wind throws that uh, we had uh, in the Southern Carpathians in the spring. Um, thousands of hectares were just put to the ground by a massive hurricane. Uh, that we had in February here. Mm -hmm. uh, and now it looks like a massive, massive environmental disaster. Uh, of course, um, forestry operators try to uh, get the timber out of the forest as soon as possible. Otherwise, the forest will get infected by bark beetle and so on. Uh, and what remains uh, is a stump scape, a clear cut. You know, after you remove all, all the dead timber and all the fallen uh, trees, you'll have nothing for one, two, three years until the forest regenerates or is being planted. Mm -hmm. um, and the drones come. Of course, then the drones come, take pictures mm -hmm. of this, and it become widely circulated on social media as a sign of impeding environmental disaster. Then this goes mm -hmm. to the European Commission or in different committees in the European Parliament. Of course, they do not have uh, the finances or uh, uh, the personnel to come and verify uh, and this just gets lost into uh, a fake news, uh, yeah. you know, type of uh, murky business uh, from which no one benefits in the end, you know, and this actually stops uh, uh, many, many stakeholders and actors to come to the same table and find some solutions uh, to tackle illegal logging more effectively 
at the same time with criminalizing many businesses uh, in this uh, economic sector because it just opposes different camps, forestry operators, forestry managers, owners, uh, big companies, retailers, and so on. So uh, very, very rarely you see all these people coming at the same table and uh, trying to find solutions because they are opposed by this fake news and criminalization discourses. I think whatever environmental movement you're part of, you wouldn't want it to be characterized or, or motivated by sort of illusions or, or confusion. So I think, sure. Um, sure. I think yeah, I, I have seen a little bit of this um, kind of quick to comment uh, ability from a lot of environmental groups. Um, and it's, yeah, I guess it, it is an issue that needs tackling, especially if we're going to tackle the real sort of problems that Romania has in terms of environment, um, can't get sidetracked by these sort of uh, these little catchy images of, uh, of things that are not actually problems. Um, I, d I do want to move us because we don't have a lot, lot of time. So I do want to move us on to the uh, European Yellowstone, which, uh, which is a pretty cool name. Uh, can you explain to us what this European Yellowstone actually is like what, what what does that name mean because I, I think most people will know the yellowstone in america but probably have never heard of a european version um probably they have never heard of because it's um a project that is still ongoing um in two words it's a private protected area uh, that aims to be the most charismatic national park uh, in europe and uh, the promoters of this project uh, usually compares it to the American Yellowstone or to Serengeti or to Kruger Park in uh, Mozambique and uh, South Africa. Um, it's a private reserve with very, very charismatic species that would be an example uh, for, for the nature conservation on the European continent. This is the official, uh, the official uh, story mm -hmm. and the story that sells. Uh, listeners could be familiar or might be familiar with this project from uh, the Wild Carpathia series that was produced by BBC and uh, includes four right. episodes that presents the wild beauties of Romania in a very, very picturesque, apolitical way. Yeah. <laughs> and this is, this is situated in the Carpathians as well, is that right? Uh, currently, this is, situation, is situated in the Southern Carpathian uh, Mountains, Fagarash uh, Park. Um, and um, it attracts a lot of uh, attention from philanthropists, I mean attention and resources from world-renowned philanthropists, uh, from governments, from institutions, uh, and from basically everyone who is uh, concerned about uh, protecting nature. Mm -hmm. You know, it's uh, apparently very beautiful and necessary project because it's usually presented in a non-political way. Uh, and um, I've done quite some research on initiatives of this kind, and uh, you will discover that they are never uh, a political project and they don't happen on a very beautiful fluffy cloud where everything can be protected without any problem from the mm -hmm. uh, ruthless loggers. Uh, and and from from that paper, it seems that you that you've written about two years ago, it seems like uh, some of the biggest victims of this uh, this activity 
to to try and protect the Southern Carpathians from from uh, in their pristine condition seem to be the local communities, right? Seems like uh, like the I mean, just to quote it, uh, your your paper, it says the European Yellowstone makes a perfect case study of an environmental protection initiative that obscures and underappreciates the work done by local communities in maintaining and enriching the natural heritage that has influenced their livelihoods for centuries. Can you tell us a little Thank bit about for, uh, how how that how can how can the the work of private actors undermine like that local communities? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, before that, I have to say that um, there is a new momentum in uh, in Europe, as there is all over the world, to promote these uh, ideas about uh, strict protection of the environment. Uh, getting people out of national parks, uh, reserving half of the earth for nature, you know, and doing development uh, in the other half. Land sparing, uh, you know, for nature protection and intensifying land use for agricultural purposes and so on. It's a whole plethora. Uh, and one of the basic assumptions of these projects is that um, you still have pockets of untouched nature be it virgin forests or large population of charismatic uh, carnivores or other wildlife or simply put wildernesses you know huge huge tracts of land um, humans were never present uh, they don't have a relation with the environment they never used this environment they never contributed to the well-being of this environment and so on and um, this is one of the underlining uh, assumption in this project that is unfolding in the Southern Carpathians. Um, so what, what the uh, the partnership uh, of found around this foundation that promotes the project uh, say is that they want to build this world-class wilderness reserve for uh, evolutionary processes to continue to happen without any human intervention. And by doing this, they obliterate the very rich environmental history of, of the area. Uh, it's hardly to say that in Europe, as on other continents, maybe in Antarctica, you have uh, no human influence on the, uh, uh, on the environment, you know. Uh, so um, you obliterate everything from past human uses to traditional uh, uh, land usage, local tradition about environments or different features of the landscape like caves, uh, you know, or special trees and uh, transhumans and uh, all sorts of other practices that were widely present and documented in this part of, of, of the country. And some, if I may add, just some that, that have positive impacts on, on the environment. Like, Absolutely. Uh, I remember reading Absolutely. a lot about the, the Amazon and how a lot of indigenous tribes to the Amazon had managed to mix make mixes of soil that ended up being actually um uh, some degrees much much to some degree some much better than normal sort of uh soil that you'd find in the amazon for growing and then they've actually contributed to a lot of the kind of enormous growth of the amazon forest through that mixing of soils which wouldn't have happened naturally that's a very good example, and it's not only soil, but also particular species. They have uh, planted different kinds of trees, uh, and they have diversified, you know, the um, uh, tree coverage of, of particular areas. And this happens in the Carpathians as well. This happens in the Alpine regions. This happens in the Mediterranean. 
environments everywhere you have traditional practices like transhumans or um, subsistence agriculture or all sorts of practices that have contributed greatly over the years over the centuries to the high biodiversity rates that you have and actually uh, eu legal frameworks like uh, natura 2000 network or the habitat directive encourage uh, um, distributing financial resources to these local communities to, to continue doing their um, to continue their livelihoods uh, and uh, contributing thus uh, to high biodiversity rates of some regions, you know. And this happens here as well. Um, but what um, recent proposals try to bring forward is uh, the idea of uh, um, human-free landscape, you know. Uh, and not only human free, but also free of domestic species like sheep uh, or cattle, you know, or um, free roaming uh, herds of pigs or horses or whatever uh, other type of domestic animals that in their view uh, come in competition with wild species. Um, and uh, while, you, while you do this and while uh, you, you try to secure the funds to go on with this project, you also fence valleys and this has happened here you fence the forest then you have all sorts of uh, uh, processes to which you impede local populations to access various resources that they have been customary used like mushrooms uh, or berries and uh, if you look further down the line who used these resources uh, to secure a living you will find roma people or very poor people that do not have jobs or land titles you know um, and you will end up noticing that a project like the European Yellowstone is nothing different than the original Yellowstone, who also evicted local populations, uh, indigenous uh, uh, and nat natives like the Shoshones or the Creek, um, you know, or the Blackfoot. Uh, and uh, it's nothing different from other protected areas in Chile or in South uh, Africa or in Mozambique or all over the global South, you know, and uh, you will start being uh, a bit angry about it. And then you will start doing a PhD about it. You know, and this is basically <laughs> what I've done. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I think at the end of the day, we can all agree that these small local populations are not the ones that are tearing our environment apart and destroying our resources this this idea that you know like you said roma people would are are the ones causing climate change in romania i think is a bit ludicrous um so we definitely need to to think about directing our attention uh correctly i i want to get on to a final question before we talk about your recommendations and your kind of constructive i guess uh, ideas I don't know, Jamie, if you have any uh, other questions, but I have one final one before we get onto that, which is um, what, what would you say to the people who, who advocate for uh, private ownership of, of land as a solution, right? I've seen this at this increasing call, I think maybe because as we see conservative uh, and libertarian kind of populations turn ecocentric they start to bring their own ideas into environmental movements which i think haven't yeah. really been there much before so so what i mean is that now i see a lot of people for example calling for the privatization of things as a solution right um what what is your kind of opinion 
uh, for on this topic, considering the research you've done? You are right to uh, assess that this is pretty new in the environmental movement. Um, when we had previously uh, this kind of proposals of privatizing resources mostly came with a highly commercial interest. Now probably it comes with an um, aim of being autarkic, of uh, being self-sustainable or self-sustained community and so on, you know, and uh, being in charge with the governance of that particular land or, or that resource, right? Um, but we don't have, I mean, it's important to consider uh, the fact that uh, we don't, do not live on different planets, you know, or not all these um, people that advocate for exclusive ownership rights. Uh, uh, they use basically an ecosystem, you know, and, and there are different dynamics that go further down the, the stream. And, uh, when you fan resource or when you fence a river or when you halt access to a different uh, forest, for example, or a pasture area, some other people will be affected. You know, uh, you cannot just take your mountain and um, cut it off from environmental dynamics. You know, it's important to, to cooperate. It's important to uh, take into consideration everyone that might be affected by this kind of move towards strict uh, ownership and exclusive ownership. You know, it's important to um, see who might be the losers and try to mitigate for that. You know, uh, who might be the winners uh, and try to uh, foster sorts of uh, um, partnerships for, uh, so that uh, you will not deepen uh, historical, um, you know, processes of exclusion or, um, inequality and, and, and so on. I'm not a big fan of this kind of proposals, as you, as you can imagine, and uh, I'm all for a democratic governance of, uh, of the environment. In your first paper that we discussed, there were four uh, main recommendations at the, at the end, which uh, I was really kind of keen to, to talk about because I feel like um, they were maybe slightly general like uh i mean obviously i know this paper wasn't meant to be like a really like in-depth you know like 100 page thing it was just five pages but um it, they felt quite general so i was wondering if you could maybe expand on these four recommendations that you list because i i think we like to get a good idea of the very like practical way in which we can implement solutions Sure. Um, first of all, I would uh, like to say that um, this report that you were just uh, citing is was was uh, written uh, with the intention of being presented to uh, yeah. new institutions. Of course. You know? uh, and these new institutions like the DG Environment or the ENVI Committee in the European Parliament or the European Environmental Agency are used with recommendations that are pretty general so that they could mm -hmm. implement them in the legal framework or resolutions that they bring forward and they don't have to be very specific. Um, but I had the Romanian case right. in mind, so I can bring very, very specific recommendations. Uh, and uh, the, the first one, uh, the first one uh, that I formulated was uh, related to um, encouraging civil society and environmental NGO participation. Uh, you know, in uh, regulating and uh, dealing with illegal logging. Mm -hmm. um, and I um, recommended that. Uh, 
even if this process should be a very democratical one, it should be backed by uh, sound science, um, you know, because mm. uh, I, and I had in mind the fact that fake news and this kind of spectacular images of uh, the environmental crime uh, could hijack, uh, you know, the uh, effectiveness of such a decision-making process. Um, and uh, when I formulated this recommendation, I thought of the Romanian context who, and you never saw civil society representatives at the same table with uh, forestry researchers or other researchers, uh, academic researchers, you know, trying to propose together something for the betterment of the legal framework, uh, you know. And uh, it's very rarely that you have this at the national level. Of course, you have it uh, in uh, international panels like IPCC uh, or uh, uh, IPBES or other type of uh, intergovernmental panels, uh, but you rarely find them at the national level. And this is an area that should be uh, given more more attention, you know, to, to have all these democratic decision-making processes backed by sound science. Uh, and where this science does not exist to make sure that the government dedicates sufficient financial resources uh, to, to have a, a very uh, rigorous scientific assessment of any decision-making process. This was the first, uh, the first recommendation. And I think it's one of the most important. Uh, the other one was uh, related to fair compensation um, for uh, whichever strict protection uh, and limitation of rights. Yeah, this was quite interesting how this would work practically to compensate sort of like local communities and actors and in their part to to help the environment. Yes, this could work. For example, uh, wherever you have a highly valuable. Uh, environmental feature like a virgin forest you know which is so rare and so important for the development of science or for climate mitigation purposes and you really have to uh, uh, restrict some land uses or to um, better regulate the fact that it's a sustainable use and, and so on and um, it's highly important to uh, consider this kind of uh, measure in the social context uh, from which uh, around which this forest exists you know, and uh, make sure that everyone uh, that sees a limitation of their right will be uh, fairly compensated. It's not the best approach possible, but probably it's the fairest. Um, usually I'm against uh, limiting access rights to, um, to customer, even to customer users or to forest owners and everyone yeah. that uh, used to sustain their livelihoods around natural resources. Um, but where conditions uh, uh, impose such a limitation of rights, uh, we have to make sure that it's, it's fair. And we have a model in development of public infrastructure, for example, where you build highways, highways and, or other type of uh, big infrastructural mega projects, you know, and you have the principle of fair compensation. It can be done the same uh, if no other satisfactory measure can be put in place, even when we talk about nature protection. Would this um, democratic process be just for the local communities that have ownership rights over forests, or would it be a, would it be a more um, general citizen thing? Ideally, it could be both. Mm. Uh, you know, because uh, everyone uh, benefits from uh, these so-called ecosystem services. You know, clean air, water retention 
huge biodiversity and uh, yeah. so so on you know so ideally it could be uh, it should be both mm. uh, but uh, when you find and very often you find a disproportionate situation when uh, very concerned environmentally um, urban population uh, push forward measures that are very very limitative towards local livelihood you know like um, strict bans of on timber forestry or um, clamping down wet markets uh, you know we've saw with the, uh, in the first weeks of the covid pandemic yeah. mm -hmm. um, and uh, all this uh, moratorium and uh, blank bans uh, were completely oblivious uh, uh, towards local traditions or local practices mm. or even cultural features of those uh, consumers you know so ideally it could be a mix of uh, of both all right george thank you so much for coming on the podcast yeah, thank you very much it's really thank interesting you a lot, to learn uh, about these romanian forests thank you a lot and, and james i uh, enjoyed the if your listeners want to find out more about illegal logging and our research please just go to biospec project uh, website you'll find their mm -hmm. podcast zines uh, blog posts and many more yeah yeah great and yeah i guess uh you can add this one to the list after a bit <laughs> when we're yeah. when uh, when I get around to editing it. I'm a bit of a lazy <laughs> editor sometimes, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, thanks Thank a so ton. much.